Hello and welcome everybody to not according to Andrew, but something a little different. Uh, in back in 2013, Box Day and Nate uh, had a written uh, inflation versus deflation debate, and I feel that is very relevant today to today. So I wanted to um, basically turn it into an audiobook type format uh, for people. Uh, typically, I kind of read these things and kind of give my comments on them. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to pu purely read what has uh, been written by the people. Uh, besides this little intro here, uh, once it's all complete, I'll probably do a video kind of breaking down uh, what the various things I'm doing. Um, also, this is going to be an, in addition to, I'm going to try to get a, one of these a week. Uh, they go back and forth for about 10 or 13 um, uh, posts. So each video will be their own thing, and then I'll put it together in a playlist to it, make it easy. Uh, also, the uh, link for the article itself, if you want to read it or follow through while you're kind of listening, um, will be available for those that are interested in it uh, and hopefully make it uh, kind of more of a central location so it's easy to uh, find, even though I guess I'm definitely smaller than <laughs> both of these people in terms of their uh, reach, but um, you know, they're getting it all together can be kind of painful. Um, so hopefully this covers everything. And now let us get into it. Since I agreed to start this debate, uh, I did not go back and reread Nate's initial and inadvertent post on the subject to which I linked last week. <clears throat> this is not a response to that post, but I will soon become, but it will soon become readily apparent, uh, is a revision of the foundation of our difference of opinion. There are, as those will recall on my pair of YouTube videos, which I don't think are on YouTube anymore, but you might be able to find them, on the subject, a variety of definitions of inflation. The Neo-Keynesians alone have no less than five, theoretical, official, textbook, practical, and core. It's not necessary to get into any of them, not any of them now, however, <clears throat> as they all eventually point to the same subject and ultimately the same question, what is money? This is the crux of the, of the matter because despite the various opinions concerning the subject of inflation, what is, uh, what it is and precisely what causes it. There is no extant theory of economics that takes serious uh Ex with the serious exception of Milton Friedman's statement that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, the outdated and long disproved Keynesian notion that it is a phenomenon somehow inversely related to unemployment uh, notwithstanding. In reviewing the various definitions of money and looking at everything from Richard, Richard Cantillon to the three major current schools, Samsonian, Friedmanite, and Austrian, it rapidly becomes clear that the Austrian School of Economics, Joseph Salarion had already worked out the path that was beginning to trend in the excellent paper, Two Traditions in Modern Monetary Theory, John Law and A.R.J. Turgot, which is the first essay in his book, Money, Sound and Unsound. In this essay, Salarion uh, shows that there is a fundamental two com there are fundamentally two competing ideas about money, neither of which are even remotely new as both monetary doctrines predate Adam Smith. Of the first tradition, which dates back to John Law, Sardellion writes, In 1750, Law pu published his principal work on money, entitled Money and Trade Considerations, with a proposal of supplying the nation with money. Law's proposal was intended to provide his native Scotland with a plentiful supply of money endowed with a long-run stable value. This institutional centerpiece envisioned in Law's scheme 
resembled a modern central bank, empowered to supply paper fiat via the purchase and sale of securities and other assets on the open market. Also strikingly modern are the theoretical propositions with which law supports his policy goals and perceptions. Law initiates his monetary theorization with two fundamental assumptions about the nature of money, function of money. The first is that money is not exactly an original creation of political authority. Its ideal function is a tool to be molded and wielded by government. Law believes that the state, as incarnated in the king, is the de facto owner of the money supply and that it is therefore possesses the right and power to determine the composition and quality of money in light of the public interest. Uh, rights law. All the coin of the kingdom belongs to the state, represented in France by the king. It belongs to him in precisely the same way that the high roads do, not that he may appropriate them to his own property, but in order to prevent others from doing so. And so it is one of the rights of the king and the king alone to make changes in the highways for the benefit of the public, of which he or his officers is the sole judge. So it is also one of his rights to change the gold and silver coinage uh, into other exchange tokens of greater benefit to the public. Translating Law's statement into modern terms, money is an instrument that should be deliberately designed to achieve political goals considered desirable to the political money managers of the government planners. Law's second basic assumption is that money serves solely as the voucher of buying goods or exchanging tokens. Thus, for law, money is not the value for which goods are exchanged, but the value by which they are exchanged. The use of money is to buy goods and silver, while money is of no use, no other use. In other words, money is dematerialized claim to goods uh, having value use in itself. <clears throat> it is more than a little startling to read Law's statement, particularly in light of the smug, self-satisfying way we hear the same sentiment, sentiments echoed more than 300 years later by those who think of themselves clever for realizing that money has no intrinsic value and therefore cannot possibly serve as a store of value in its own right, as it only possesses the exchange value conferred upon it uh, by the power of the state. Sarleone notes that the law, <clears throat> that law monetary tradition is the dominant one, uh, and comments the Neo-Keynesians, monetarists, and supply-siders differ among themselves in important areas of theory and policy, but all share uh, most of Law's fundamental ideas about money. He goes into some detail concerning the primary factors of the th three schools uh, shared concerning money and the monetary policy, which include money as a policy tool, money as an exchange token, stabilizing of the price level, the resources, costs of commodity money, and the supply of money as a political monopoly. I will not go into all the details to support Sir Leon's conclusion, but a brief glimpse at the most influential textbook in modern economic history, Paul Samuelson's Economics, should suffice to prove that they are fair and accurate. There are two distinct uh, money, functions of money, as a medium of exchange and a standard unit of value. We must summarize our analysis of the use of money by listing its two essential functions, one as a medium of exchange and two as a standard unit of account or common denominator of value. Economics, page 57 to 58 in the Samuelson's Economics book. The second and competing monetary tradition traces back to Turgot, the man whom Joseph Sumter and the Austrian school tend to regard uh, with Richard Cantillon, as the true father of modern economics, whose rightful place in the history of economic thought has been usurped by Adam Smith. Of the Turgot tradition, Sarleone writes, 
Turgot flatly rejects Law's primary contentment that money is merely an exchange token, whose supply must be manipulated by the political authorities in order to achieve select policy goals. According to Turgot, uh, money is essentially a medium of exchange and a unit in which relative prices are expressed. These two pro uh, properties of serving as a common measure of value, i.e. the unit, which all prices are expressed, and the beginning of the representative pledge of all commodities of like value, i.e. medium of exchange, include the constitutions of essential utility of what is called money. As Turgot points out, however, these two fundamentals of money can only be performed by an article which is already widely used, valued, and exchanged under barter. All money is essentially merchandise, which can take the form of common measure of values only uh, that when only that which has a value and which is received in commerce in exchange for other values. There is no pledged universal representative of value save another un and there is no pledged universal representative of a value save another equal value. Since money thus necessarily originates as a useful commodity from within the market economy itself, Turgot emphatically denies the possibility that a purely conventional money without pre-existing purchasing power can be imposed from the outside of the market. According to Turgot, it is not a virtue of convention that money is exchanged against all other values. It is because money itself is an object of commerce and part of wealth because it, is, it itself has a value and in trade all value has exchanged against equal values. So the primary factors of money in the Turgot tradition are one, a medium of exchange, two, a unit of expression, three, an object of commerce, i.e. the exchange good, four, a tool of economic calculation, and five, an intrinsic store of value. Having laid out the two primary definitions of money, I now turn it over to Nate to declare which of these two competing traditions he holds to be money. If he has some third definition of money, he believes would better be utilized concerning the debate. And that concludes the first section of the inflation versus deflation debate. Uh, please stay tuned for part two. Thank you for listening.